Welcome to the Leadership Mindset Podcast with me, Tony Brooks, where we look to revolutionize your leadership mindset by changing how you think and see your world, enabling you to do the right things and grow significantly as a leader. Welcome back to the Leadership Mindset Podcast Series, and I'm really pleased today to have Beth Beard with me, who's an employment lawyer at Nelson's. Uh, best well known for her professionalism and, and ability to provide her clients confidence by cutting through legal issues, uh, providing concise, easy to understand solutions. Beth's got an interest in discrimination, as well as strategic projects such as collective consultation and to be transfers. And Beth and I got to know each other um, by a, both, both of a friend of both of us, actually, Pete Colby. And then recently, we ended up doing a co-presentation together for the Chamber of Commerce, which was kindly suggested by Beth, which we both really enjoyed doing. And so I said, well, Beth, obviously, you've got to come on the podcast series now that we've done a co-present and talk about the same kind of thing. So on the presentation, we were talking about uh, the fine balance really between getting the best out of people, but then how you part ways with people in the best ways as well. So best expertise very much uh, around that latter part and obviously the former as well so welcome Beth lovely to have you with us today good morning thank you so much for a warm welcome Tony it really is a pleasure to join you on this podcast my first one as we've just been discussing so I'm really looking forward to getting into it yeah, and she's also into her dance music. So she went to Part Life at the weekend, didn't you? I was off to download for a rock festival and, and Beth was at Part Life um, watching Skrillex and, and other dance stuff. So uh, we both, we both, and I think you can tell from my voice that I'm still feeling the lasting effects of download. So there you go. I'm going to do my best to croak through the 40 minutes as we uh, and leave a lot of the talking to Beth, which is what I should do anyway. So, Beth, anyway, let's start with um, just a little bit of a brief um, for obviously some people will know you listen to this, some people won't. A bit of a brief journey of, of how you've arrived um, as an employment lawyer as we sit here today then. Thank you. What a question to start with, Tony. How did I arrive here as an employment lawyer? I think it goes back to when I was about 11 years old uh, and I announced to the world, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer, so I have <laughs> enough money to pay for my horses. Uh, in hindsight, that was an interesting decision to make. <laughs> Whilst I do have two horses, um, they are very expensive, that's for sure. So how did I get to here? Well, I went to university. I studied law. I then went on to do a placement year in 2008. So I worked for a firm in Nottingham in the height of recession, and I saw lots of different areas of law really struggling because of the effects of the recession. And then I looked over and I saw the employment law team uh, very busy at that moment in time. And I thought, hmm, employment law. Well, we're dealing with people. It's recession proof and it's constantly changing. And I think that that's a real good fit for my personality. We'll move on to discussing why I'm sure during the podcast, but I just thought, having that sense of variety, having that sense of being able to make a change, seeing projects through from beginning to end, having an impact in businesses uh, was a really good starting point. So off I went back to university. I did my dissertation in employment law and technology, and that was a fantastic uh, piece of work to do so early on in my career. 
And then from there, I, as I say, knew I wanted to do employment law, structured my training contract around that and was very lucky to get offered a role at the end of my training contract as an employment lawyer. And I've gone on to have a very rich and varied experience. I spent some time working in-house at Amazon, working on the floor as a HR business partner. That gave me so much experience. It gave me the ability to understand what it's like operationally. And that was really good. And then fast forward to where I am today, uh, still practicing employment law and still very much passionate about it. You are indeed, and it's, and it's amazing to see that. And yeah, some amazing experiences. I can't believe, I didn't know that about you, actually, that 11 years of age, you'd already decided what your career was. When, when I was 11 years of age, I think my aspiration was either to be a footballer, a singer, or an ice cream man. I think, I don't know why an ice cream man, but I think you remember that was <laughs> part of my plans. It wasn't to be a leadership psychologist when I was 11 years old. So I, I didn't have the foresight you had anyway, for sure, Beth. Anyway, but brilliant. And what are, and I know we'll touch on this more and more as we get into it, because I, um, I, I know how important uh, what you do is to you and how passionate you feel about it. And um, what are the, some of the key driving values for you then in your work? What What drives you, Beth? Well, I'm told that I am a strategist and I probably agree with that. Uh, It means that I'm very much results orientated. I'm very analytical and I have a real drive for change. I always like to have a plan, much to the dismay, really, of my friends and family sometimes. Can't you just go with the flow? No, we need (laughs) to have a plan. And linking that to my work, I get to the point I follow plans. I keep on track of the things that need to be done. And that enables me to see things from beginning to an end uh, to completion. I like to get work done right. And I like to get it done on time. And I tend to move actually at a faster than average pace. I'm very inquisitive about the world. So I like to understand why people do what they do in the workplace, why business leaders make decisions that they do, or sometimes why they don't make certain business decisions. I've got a very strong sense of responsibility. And that enables me to really build strong relationships with businesses and clients in order to provide them with that strategic legal advice that they need. And then personally, my key values are kindness and generosity. That means that I have an awful lot of empathy. And sometimes I do think it is the small things that make the biggest difference. And emotional intelligence, you and I covered that in our recent presentation. I think that's really important. So I try and often put myself in the other person's shoes, understand how they might be feeling about a particular situation, rather than just looking at things rather coldly. I think if you can apply empathy to the situations that you're advising in, it usually is a good starting point particularly with what you do as well. And um, I'd like to see what I think what I do as well. So I've been on um, the receiving end of your sort of keeping things on track and getting things done because we bumped into each... Actually, it was the first time we met in person, wasn't it, Beth? We met in Nottingham City Business Club. Um, We were having a chat and you said, I want to do a presentation. I want to do a co-present. And uh, I said, yeah, that'd be interesting. And so before I knew anything, it had all happened. It was in the diary. We we knew the title. We got the uh, got it all structured, <laughs> and it was great because I'm I'm typically uh, well organised myself. But it was great to hand over the reins to you and let you drive it. So uh, all brilliant stuff. And I think em- you you talked about empathy and emotional intelligence. I think 
that dealing with, um, you know, what we're going to talk about today, some of those areas around the performance of people and issues uh, with people as well. Empathy, so important. I was talking only to a coaching client this morning about that, um, that, that important thing about understanding somebody else's position, um, you know, where they are and what's going on in their world and how are they thinking about something or how are they feeling? So, um, yeah, I haven't got to know you to a degree, Beth, not, not surprised at all to hear all of those values coming out for you, both personally and professionally, really, really important part of it. So yeah, thank you for sharing those. What about, um, so let's go, going into, performance matters with people and um employees and what have you um do do you personally think businesses do enough to improve the performance of their people and and if not um what kind of things do you think businesses and organizations could do more of to get more out of their people really so I often get advised or asked to advise on situations where people aren't performing, but they haven't addressed it early enough. I think there's a real danger that we are living in an overpraised generation. We have a workforce that needs constant reassurance and that makes people fragile. It makes them dependent. And I read a quote actually recently um, of a very well-known business leader, Ben Francis of Gymshark. And he said, if we have people that never fail in business, then all we're left with is a group of people that have never failed. And that is very dangerous. And I think it's important to recognise that sometimes people can fail with good intentions and we should actually praise for those that don't need praise. I think that there's a real danger that we live and work in a world where we're not able to improve people's performance just simply because people can't take on board uh, that feedback, that criticism. So what do I think that they need to do more of? I think that there needs to be an open dialogue. I think businesses need to do more in terms of encouraging an environment where people can grow, they can learn, they can make mistakes. There needs to be very open channels for honest feedback. But more importantly, once honest feedback is shared, it needs to be respected and it needs to be acted upon. And sometimes businesses can do a great job of opening channels of feedback but then once that feedback is given or received uh, nothing's actually implemented and that can then break down uh, relationships yeah i love that i I love that i think that um i i I was interested to hear you talking about sort of almost like an over praising uh which i was interested i mean i i i personally find at times though that leaders don't take enough time to show appreciation for a job well done and actually give people constructive feedback on things that have been done well as well. But um, but I think what you're saying there is so right, Beth, that you've got to have a culture where mistakes are made and people aren't, you know, fingers aren't pointed. It's not a blame culture for that, but that people can learn from that. And I think you and I both like the sort of growth mindset uh, concept of triggering people and triggering cultures where um, mistakes are made, challenges are hit, um, skills need to be improved, feedback's given, but it's given in a, I guess, in a more safe, secure way where um, you can have, like you were talking there about, having more honest, open dialogue around that. And um, 
yeah, I think that's brilliant. I think for me, it's good to give praise, but that's got to be balanced with honest, critical feedback as well when things haven't gone so well and getting people in the right headspace for that. So, yeah, I really like that. Absolutely. Uh, you, you've exactly uh, hit the point that I was trying to make there, which is sometimes businesses can create environments where people just take feedback as criticism where actually it's not the case it's there to to encourage it's there to grow and it really is about providing an environment where that growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset is adopted so that everybody can can learn and grow and to succeed yeah but i I guess it's um funny enough again i was talking to a a client this morning about it's the way feedback's given as well though isn't that's important because let's say something's gone wrong on a project and you go in and say um one of a better expression you screwed up you know you got this wrong you got that wrong and that's going to put people into a defensive place really quickly and feel threatened um, I talk about the loss, uh, this a lot in my survival psychology model. It's one of the five areas about this people going into defensive mindset too quickly. But as leaders, we can push them into that place quickly. Whereas I think if you if you say, I'm going to give you some feedback on that recent project, which didn't go so well. But the intention of the feedback is to, like you were saying, Beth, to help you grow, develop, improve. Hopefully we don't hit the same problem again in the future. People are more receptive to that. So I think leaders have a responsibility like you're saying, to give honest feedback, but to give it yes. in a way where it's going to, you know, trigger people's growth mindset and make them receptive to listen and learn from it and grow from it rather than go straight into a, a defensive place, I guess, really. Agreed. Yeah, excellent. And so, OK, there's some good ideas there in terms of what can business, you know, how businesses can do um or improve, I guess, and what things they can do more of to get more out of their people. I don't know about you as well. I think that um, one of the one of the big things for me in terms of getting things out of people is you were talking about being a strategist yourself. But I think sometimes people work in organisations where they're maybe not that clear on where the organisation is looking to get to and what their goals are and what's the purpose of what they're doing and, and all of those kind of things. And I think that big picture stuff could be shared more in organisations so that people can connect up what they're doing in their role with where the organisation is looking to get to and the contribution they're making to the people that they serve to community to whatever it might be really um how do you feel about that beth i've already mentioned that actually i think sometimes it's the smaller things that make the biggest difference so i think if you absolutely feedback is really important it needs to be open it needs to be honest but sometimes the small things if somebody has gone above and beyond that needs to be given praise as well i think it's not just giving praise for praise's sake uh, to stop people from being fragile and dependent it's actually recognizing where performance is done really well I think sometimes there can be a danger that there's too much focus on managing poor performance as opposed to what about all those really high flyers those leaders that are doing making really great steps and sometimes those people get forgotten and actually it's the people that need more support and it may be they need valid support and absolutely that should be given but it's 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 a very delicate balance between making sure that you're 
your leaders and the people that are thriving in environments are continue to have that um and you don't just all automatically look at the negatives again i think it's just that defensive mindset if something is not going so well we just naturally gravitate to to looking at the negative side as opposed to the positives that might be uh, arising out of a certain workplace situation yeah yeah what's your thoughts on um how well businesses manage or organizations, let's say in a broad sense. What's your thoughts, Beth, on how well they manage underperformance and how decisive and how they act in relation to underperformance? What do, what have, what do you see in your experience on that? I, I don't see underperformance managed very well. I think the problem is that it's it's uncomfortable. And people generally are wanting to escape discomfort. I think having to tell somebody that they're not doing a very good job is always a difficult message to deliver. I think we are all, as people, as human beings, we're all naturally wanting, you know, we all have a desire to be liked by somebody. So if you've got to go and deliver a message to say, actually, I don't think you're doing a very good job. And this is all this, you know, these are all the steps that we're going to take in order to get you to that standard. I think the delivery of the message I see is not done with empathy. The problem is people just go in and say, you're not doing a very good job, the end, as opposed to, Let's give you some feedback. There was a recent project or recent projects. You know, usually it's not just one act of underperformance that should trigger a performance management process. Usually it's a chain of events that occur. And you go in with that mindset and say, look, this this is a process designed to support you to improve and being very open and honest. And I think that people just avoid having those conversations. And by the time that they have those conversations, it's too late. Um, I'm sure we'll talk in more detail about it in this podcast, but we get to a point where it's too late. The relationship's broken down and both parties are in a fixed mindset. So I, I don't see performance management processes done uh, very well at all. People don't keep on top of them. People don't check in with people how's it going do you need any more support do you need any more training um sometimes employees get into a bit of a mindset where they think that a certain job that they're doing is the only job available to them whereas there might be other roles in the organization they could pursue that there's so many alternatives and i think that sometimes those just aren't explored properly and it's a long time it's a long process I normally advise that any fair performance management process should be between three and six months you need to give somebody that genuine time to improve you can't expect somebody to turn things around in four weeks that that would be unfair so unfortunately it isn't something that I see uh, is done very well at all yeah no I, 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 I really relate to a few things you said there I think um and I guess as human beings, we all relate to that thing where we we do like we we you know desire to be liked. I think as you use that expression, and um, it's not great dealing with situation. I've had this um, myself, Beth, in, in organisations I've worked with over the sort of last year in particular that springs to mind, where it's even more difficult when the person that is underperforming is really nice character, you know, liked by people. Um, but there may be, for one of a better expression, a bit of a square peg in a round hole. And, um, people are, you know, companies and organizations can avoid dealing with that. But, um, I also thought that you, you made another couple of really important points about being, I guess, 
being a bit more open-minded in ways forward. So is there another role for that person? If that person is, like the example that I was talking about there, you know, a good character, good good person, they're um, enthusiastic about the company, but maybe their skill set doesn't match their role and it's proving hard to work that through, that can you find um, another uh, place for them in the organisation where they can add value and they can do something that they feel is worthwhile and, and good for them. I think that is such a good point, Beth. And I think sometimes organisations don't think wide enough with those kind of issues. And and your other point as well about don't just only give somebody four weeks. Yes. Um, but I guess that can be, the, the problem can be if, if you've held off dealing with things for a long, long time, like you said, the leader or uh, company owner's position can be quite fixed because they think they've been watching it for a long time and they're fixed. And so the idea of taking three to six months on then on a performance management process is, but that goes back to the fact they should have been acting earlier. You know, they um, it's, it's, it's done too late. I think, as you said, Beth often, and that um, not enough is done early enough to give both sides chance to make it work. Is it really? Um so when you're, you know, when you're called in then, um, what kind of situations are you dealing with um, in relation to employee performance? And when you're, when you're called or asked to help, what, what kind of situations are you dealing with, Beth? So clients will come and say, we have a problem with an employee. They're not performing. How, how, do, we, how do we handle it? How do we address it? So the first port of call is to establish what their length of service is because their length of service will determine what level of risk is potentially there for the business then once we've established the length of service of the individual we'll explore whether there's any underlying reasons for the poor performance for example if somebody is going through a difficult time if they have a disability if there are any other factors that might have an impact on their performance I think it's really important for me to understand if this person has not been performing for a long time uh, they've never really performed to the standard and it hasn't been addressed or actually whether this is somebody that is a really good performer but they've had some major life event because life does happen you know changes constant changes an absolute given and it's something that needs to be managed properly I think yep. so. I would always get a full understanding of the situation. And then after that, I would find out whether or not they have an internal performance management process, because it's always helpful to have an objective process. Sometimes people can take performance management as being very subjective. They feel singled out. They might start yep. mentioning words such as bullying, harassment, whereas actually, if we can be very objective and to say we have a company policy, this is the way that we deal with performance management, um, then that can definitely help matters. So that would be the starting point. It would be to understand the background of this situation, what's going on, and then secondly, establish whether there is a, there is a performance management process. If there is, usually there is, great we can then move on and we can follow that process that will involve a series of steps as I already mentioned that will be being very clear on what standards are expected what the review periods are going to be there's any training that's required and more importantly it is crucial to actually advise the individual what 
the consequences might be if they fail to improve. And that can be a difficult message to deliver because sometimes I'll have clients that go through a fantastic performance management process, but they've not actually told the employee that if they fail to improve at the end of that process, unfortunately, the employment relationship will no longer continue. Uh, And it really shouldn't be a surprise to somebody at the end of that process that ultimately their employment may well terminate. So, again, it's addressing all of those issues with empathy and being very fair in everything that you do. Yeah, like that. And um, I think you, you used to, uh, there was a couple of things, expressions that you, you, you spoke about. You, one was objectivity, yeah. because I think that fairness, as you spoke about as well, Beth, is um, can be seen if, if the process seems to be consistent and objective rather than subjective. So I really like that. Um, when you were talking about things like disability and personal situations, well, because we're dealing with human beings. I know when we were together, you were talking about reasonable adjustments that companies can make. What kind of things need to be thought about in relation to that then? So the obligation to accommodate a reasonable adjustment arises if somebody meets the legal definition of a disability. And if somebody has a disability and they're asking for reasonable adjustments, I think that businesses ought to be aware that the employee is probably asking, having thought about everything else they could potentially do. I think sometimes businesses will approach a reasonable adjustment as somebody wanting to cause difficulty or asking for an easy way out, whereas actually why they're asking is because they need an environment in which they can work to their advantages. I always advise clients, if you have somebody that is disabled, then it's to treat them fairly. Don't treat them differently. Treat them fairly. And that is what a reasonable adjustment is there for. The law protects those with a disability to be treated fairly and not differently. And I I can't stress that enough. So a reasonable adjustment is there to remove a barrier that a disabled person is facing. I think it's to take the request seriously because often it will take a lot for a disabled person to ask for that reasonable adjustment. So I think if businesses can be really proactive with suggestions for reasonable adjustment, that is certainly helpful. But knowing that a one-size-fits-all doesn't work. Everybody has different disabilities. Everybody has different needs. And sometimes I can see businesses be really evasive in their questioning when ultimately it's only the individual that has the disability that will ever know what it's like to live and to work with that disability in mind. So adopting a quite evasive and excessive line of questioning can be really problematic and again it leads to a complete breakdown in relationships so the reasonable adjustments really do vary on a case-by-case basis it needs to be done with proper understanding and proper again we're going back to that open and honest dialogue that open and honest environment in which somebody can say these are the challenges these are the barriers that I have I've come up with these suggestions that would really help me and it's working together to actually identify if it is something that we can accommodate and if it isn't um, I've seen all, all sorts of things uh, in in my practicing um, career that, and it re- it really just it depends on the nature of the condition and what the person is asking for. Yeah, yeah, and I guess um, 
Somebody like you can provide a level of expertise there, but what, what would they ref- could they refer to occupational health if they've got that within the organisation? If, obviously, if it's a smaller business, that's less likely, but they could bring in an occup- occupational health expert from outside or... Yes, that so that an occupational health expert is a great resource if it can't be mutually agreed what the reasonable yeah. adjustments are going to look like. So I, I, I just think, and this is the starting point, the employee, if they're approaching their employer or vice versa, they can discuss the reasonable adjustments. And if they can agree without the need for occupational health, then fantastic, because ultimately as I say, it's the individual with the disability who will know what it's like to work with that uh, condition. But occupational health do a great job in terms of seeking the feedback of the individual and then making suggestions for reasonable adjustments. So that's helpful if somebody doesn't know what options what potential support there is out there there's schemes like access to work there's funding that is available for people with disabilities in the workplace that can be accessed so occupational health can be great in that regard and ultimately they are independent but certainly if things were ever to get contentious I would always advise getting an occupational health report and making sure that the questions that you're asking are designed with wanting to support that person because I know in the workplace there's so often people that are not open and honest about their disability because there's a fear there's a real sense of fear in terms of wanting to share that either because they feel that they'll be treated differently whether they feel that people will judge them will undermine them there's a whole host of different reasons why somebody might want to keep their disability hidden so there is a real danger um, that automatically just going to occupational health um, could fracture the relationship. But there, it's a fantastic resource. And if the relationship had broken down, you absolutely need to go and get an occupational health report. Yeah, no, brilliant. And I think um, what I'm hearing a lot in there is how sensitively that that kind of situation needs to be handled, really. Um, particularly, as you say, for the person who out of an element of fear to a degree or whatever or feeling threatened wouldn't want to disclose um the nature of their disability and how it's impacting them so so important to handle all that that sensitively isn't it beth um that that was very useful thank you for sharing that i think that'll be really uh useful to people in organizations who probably aren't aware of the full scope of their responsibility and also um and how they, you know, how they need to handle a situation like that, really. On to a, on to a slightly different topic then. Um, what what should organisations be mindful of in terms of unfair dismissal then? So when we get into a place where maybe things aren't working out, gone through an objective process and they're going to part ways, what kind of uh, matters should leaders, organisations be mindful around unfair dismissal then? Okay, so in employment law in the UK, there is a concept called unfair dismissal. And what that means is that once somebody's got two years service with their employer, they have the right to claim ordinary unfair dismissal. So once somebody has acquired that right, businesses need to have a fair reason and follow a fair process in order to dismiss that person in order to end the employment relationship. So there are five potentially fair reasons and usually it can be quite straightforward to establish what 
the reason is for dismissal. So just to summarise, the five potentially fair reasons are conduct. So somebody has done something, for example, stolen something in the workplace. Capability. Now, there's two avenues for capability. Either somebody is not performing, as we've mentioned in this podcast, or actually somebody is unwell. They're they're not able, they're no longer capable of doing their role. Redundancy. So that is where there is a reduced need for employees to do work of a particular kind or a workplace closure. Egality. So if somebody needed a workplace visa and they were unable to work under that visa, then they couldn't be employed because by reason of egality. Or the final one is a catch-all category, some other substantial reason. So that is where you've got a reason that doesn't really fit into any of the others we're using or i'm certainly seeing this ground be used for personality clashes so where yeah both parties haven't really done anything wrong you can't really say it's conduct because somebody isn't doing something that would constitute an issue to warrant gross misconduct or a conduct matter, misconduct matter. It's just usually where you've got a situation, people just don't get on, there's a personality clash. Uh, so we're seeing that uh, used quite a lot uh, for that re- uh, in recent years. And then, as I say, so the, the basic position is if you've got somebody with two years service, you've got to have a fair reason. We've just talked about those and then you've got to follow a fair process. So we've mentioned with the performance management that would involve following a procedure. If there is one, if there isn't one, then adopting it, being very clear, documenting the process. You know, I, yeah, I, I yeah, see. Yeah. I see leaders say, well, I've done all of that. And I say, okay, fantastic. Well, can I have a look at it? Oh, well, we, we didn't bother to document it. And unfortunately, in terms of risk, you've got to document the process because you've got no evidence. So that can be really difficult. So that's a starting point when it comes to ordinary unfair dismissal. But businesses also need to be aware that they shouldn't just sit on their laurels and say, OK, well, I've got somebody uh, with less than two years service. Actually, uh, they, they've got no rights then. Does that mean I can dismiss them immediately? And of course, the answer to that is it's not as straightforward as that. And there <laughs> are exceptions. So there's something called automatic unfair dismissal. An automatic unfair dismissal does not require two years service. So there might be things like whistleblowing. What does whistleblowing mean? It's where if somebody raises something in the workplace that they think is unlawful or illegal, they can blow the whistle. So they've got the right not to be subject to a detriment or to be dismissed as a result of blowing the whistle. So okay, yeah. if somebody... If somebody did blow the whistle and they were dismissed, then that would be considered automatic unfair dismissal. No need to have two years service. There's other exceptions as well, uh, some of which are making a flexible working request. You know, some real niche areas, taking family leave or taking action on a health and safety issue. We're just seeing this series of COVID cases coming through where people were refusing to work because of fears on COVID and they were subsequently dismissed. Most of them had less than two years service, so they are pursuing claims for automatic unfair dismissal. So unfair dismissal seems a relatively straightforward concept, but it is this enormous a beast really and there's so much that businesses have to think about um and i have uh, the privilege of being able to educate 
it and to avoid risk. And that's something uh, that is a fundamental part of the job that I do in advising on employment law. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, wow, it's why people like you are so important, Beth, because um, companies do this kind of thing without consulting experts at their peril, really, don't they? So, uh, yeah, brilliant. What about... um, just a final question before we get into just some, some more information about you. People want to know where to find you, Beth, and what have you. What about discrimination then? What kind of things um, should companies be mindful of in terms of being found to be acting in a discriminatory way then? Just don't do it. Do, <laughs> do not do it. I know that we are a long way off ever living in a world that is free of discrimination but all businesses can take proactive steps to minimize discrimination in the workplace they can do this by having a genuine and i reiterate the word genuine and well thought out equal opportunities policy they need to make sure that that's regularly communicated to the workforce and it's kept up to date Managers need, managers, leaders, they need to be trained in the subject. They're not employment law experts. They don't understand the different forms of discrimination and they don't understand the protected characteristics that people need to look out for. Discrimination is such a widely used term, probably an overused term, uh, but it's got such serious consequences if discrimination is found to have happened in the workplace. So, just like automatic unfair dismissal, there is no qualifying requirement to bring a claim for discrimination. So business leaders really ought to be prioritising equal opportunities. I've just recently done some training on diversity and inclusion, and this is really a field that is going to be attracting, in my view, a lot of attention. I like talking to business leaders and saying, what issues have you got with your people? What's going on? And diversity and inclusion is right up there on the agenda for most businesses. And I think that that is a great, great starting step. So if we can get more businesses, more leaders shouting about the same positive message, uh, as I say, I'm always striving for equality. I, I, I disagree with the concept that people need to be treated differently. I think everybody should be on an equal playing field assessed for the person that they are regardless of their age disability gender reassignment marriage and civil partnership pregnancy maternity race religion and belief sex or sexual orientation sexual orientation they're all of the protected characteristics so really it's trying to strive for a world where we can promote that and everybody uh, is treated fairly yeah, and, and there's some really important words in all that for me. You know, that fairness, proactivity, genuineness as well, I think. Um, and yeah, all of those things. And you were saying that you, you did some diversity. And in, is that part of what you do then, Beth? You did some diversity and inclusion training yourself recently. You run that, yeah. I, I did. So um, you and I, that's why I ambushed you at the recent Nottingham City Business Club lunch and said, come on board, let's do a training session together. I really enjoyed that education piece. I think I like to run 
interactive and engaging training sessions because I learn as well from those I get to learn from business leaders I get to understand their mindset I get to understand what their people are doing what their people are saying what what kind of issues are coming up mental health is is enormous at the moment that's potentially a disability but there's lots of other things in terms of diversity and inclusion we've got a neurodiverse workforce that we can really be promoting there's so much that's going on so yeah that is something that I I do on a regular basis on a range of topics. Um, so if anybody is interested in that, then we can always put that together for them. There you know, brilliant. And that leads me on to what I was just about to do. Uh, so thank you for segueing nicely into that. Um, thank you so much for sparing your time today. There's so much wealth of experience and expertise um, you know, with you, Beth, and, we, and with what we've been discussing, probably any tip of the iceberg, really. But I think even the sort of, 40 minutes we spent today, I think people will take away a lot from that. But if people want to connect with you, find out more about you and what you can do to help them, what's the best way of people um, locating you then, Beth, or getting in touch? So you can find me on LinkedIn, Beth Bearder. I'm always happy to chat to people about my work and their work. It satisfies my inquisitive needs. So <laughs> I would suggest reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'd be more than happy to support with anything that somebody might need. Brilliant. And that's Beth Bearder Nelson's Law, isn't it? That's it. So, yeah, Sarah, if if there are more than one Beth Bearders uh, who are employment lawyers, I don't know whether there are or not, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, brilliant. I, I think you'll, you'll find that people will connect with you because I think that's so complex, so sensitive, um, that it's and as you say, I think these kind of matters are, are not subsiding. They're growing all the time, aren't they? Really, that you know people need to a be more aware, but know how to handle things as well. So yeah, hey Beth, thank you so much. It was um, an absolute pleasure presenting with you recently at the Chamber of Commerce, and I knew it was going to be um, a fun and fascinating uh, discussion today. Uh, so thank you for appearing on the Leadership Mindset Podcast series. Thank you so much, Tony. If you want to explore your leadership mindset in more detail, why not complete our free leadership diagnostic at thetonybrooks.com and subscribe to this podcast to join us for future podcasts.